Scripture lesson for this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark is from Mark chapter 6, verses 6b through 13. And if you're wondering about that B, it's not a typo, the verse cut off in the middle with a new section. So just a little bit of trivial knowledge for you there. So 6b through 13, listen now for God's word to you. Then Jesus went out among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you have to leave the place. If any will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So every time I hear the story of Jesus sending his disciples out on their missionary journey, I can't help but think of a story that I know I've shared with you all before, uh, but it's been a couple of years. It was actually one of the first, in one of the first sermons I gave as the pastor here. So chances are you probably don't remember it anyway. Uh, but also, the more we get to know each other, the more you're going to hear the same stories over and over again. It's like being with family, right? Uh, but Heather and I have always enjoyed traveling. It's been an important part of our relationship. And back in those days before we had kids, traveling was especially easy. Uh, we would just simply pack a bag the night before. We'd throw it in the car, or head to the airport, and head off and go to wherever we were going. Uh, we went to the airport, we would always, uh, we'd never checked a bag, we would just have our little uh, carry-ons, we'd have our boarding passes loaded on our phones. I, I felt like a professional traveler, like I belonged at the airport, I felt really cool at the airport. Um, but of course, at every airport there's a sight to behold, parents with their young children at the airport. Uh, they always had so many bags, and their toddlers were running off in this way overstimulating environment, and I always felt so bad for them. I looked at them with pity in my eyes. But of course, one day I became one of those parents. <laughs> I still remember vividly the first flight that Heather and I took after Axel was born. Uh, we were still living in Missouri at the time. Heather was part of this master's nursing program out of Philadelphia that was mostly online, but one of the requirements was three times over the course of the program, you'd have to go out to uh, Philadelphia for in-person education. Uh, so that first time was when Axel was only three months old. Um, we also had a friend who was getting married in New Jersey at the same time, so we made this big, long trip out of it. And let me say, for what it's worth, Axel was incredibly good for that first flight. We could not have asked for anything better. He slept basically the entire time. But let me also say, traveling with a three-month-old really cramped my style. Gone were the days of simply throwing things in the bag the night before. Heather had a whole Excel spreadsheet of all the things that we needed. Uh, gone, too, were the days of just bringing carry-ons onto the plane. We had to have a checked bag that was full of all kinds of things, baby clothes, blankets, bottles, wipes, creams, all the things that you can imagine. And luckily, it checked in at just under 50 pounds. So didn't have to pay any of the extra fees for that. Um, the nice thing was is that they let us skip the TSA line because we had the baby. We had the stroller in the car seat with us as well. And uh, by the time we got to our gate, we still had our two check bags, two personal items, a stroller, and the car seat with us. We way overpacked for this trip. Um, 
When we got to the gate, it became my task then to get this giant bag they give you, the gate agent gives you this, to pack your stroller and your car seat into so you can bring it down the bridge and leave it at the end of the plane uh, so that you can get it when you get off the plane. So I'm packing this thing in, and finally it comes time for us to board our plane, and, and Heather's got her personal item and Axel in one arm. She not only looks like Supermom, but she is Supermom. Meanwhile, there's me with our two carry-on bags and this giant duffel bag with our stroller and our car seat in it. And I'm lugging it down the bridge at 5.30 in the morning. And as I'm lugging what feels like all of my worldly possessions behind me, the story pops into my head, and I can't help but think that Jesus was on to something. <laughs> Traveling without purse, bag, or shoes, or diaper bags, or strollers, or car seats, without any of that sort of thing. You know, the story where Jesus sends these disciples out on this missionary journey is one that has really captivated me over the last few years. It's been a very interesting story to me. Uh, that as Mark tells it to us, Jesus calls his disciples together and gives them authority over unclean spirits. Um, we see it here once again, as we saw it last week, the presence of unclean spirits or uh, demonic possession. And that might irk our modern sensibilities just a little bit. We don't really think about things like that. Um, but it's something that we see Jesus doing a lot in the Gospel of Mark, that he's often depicted as an exorcist, someone who encounters those demonic forces. Um, and for me, how I've come to understand the presence of those things within the stories of the Gospel is that they are simply a presence, a reminder of the reality of evil in our world, a reminder that things are not always as they could and should be, that there are things in our world that lessen, distort, and destroy human life and human flourishing. And we, I think, can understand that, right? We can turn on the news and we understand that things are not always as they should be. There is the presence of evil. There is the presence of heartache and brokenness in the world around us. You know, we might not call it demonic possession anymore, but we can understand it to be things like children who go to bed hungry at night or the, the hurtful ways, the hurtful things that we say to one another, the wounds that we endure. We understand it as systemic racism or homophobia or even a year on from the beginning of the war in Ukraine, civilians who die in the midst of warfare. We understand the things that distort, destroy, and lessen human life. And I said to you all last week that we learn who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark by watching and observing the things that he does, uh, that we watch and we observe, and that gives us a picture of who he is. And, and we've kind of jumped quite a bit from chapter one last week to chapter six this week, and I, I encourage you all to read Mark on your own, so you all did that, right? You all know what happens anyway. Um, but if we watched and observed Mark through those five chapters that we skipped over, we see somebody who has authority over those things that lessen, distort, and destroy human life. You know, last week, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, and a, a man with an unclean spirit disrupts the whole service, but Jesus comes and encounters him and, and casts out that unclean spirit. And immediately after that act of healing, Jesus goes back to Peter's mother-in-law's house where he and his first disciples are staying. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus heals her. And pretty soon the entire town of Capernaum is beating down the door of that house trying to receive healing from Jesus. In chapter 2, there are, uh, there's a crowd that really presses in around Jesus in that, in that same house, listening to him as he teaches 
It's like a standing room only crowd. There's no room for anybody to move anywhere. The problem is, is there are four friends carrying a fifth friend who's paralyzed, wanting to get in to see Jesus. It takes a while to get somebody who's in that condition ready, and they missed their opportunity seemingly to get to Jesus. But these friends are resourceful. They climb up to the roof of the house, they commit an act of vandalism and tear the roof off the place and begin lowering their friend down to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't correct them for their act of property destruction. Jesus instead heals the man, and the entire crowd is amazed. Authority over that which lessens, distorts, and destroys human life. Mark sort of gives us this kind of summary statement as well, that Jesus goes around Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He heals lepers, some of the greatest outcasts of that society. In one of my favorite stories anywhere in the Bible, Jesus encounters a man that we have called the Gerasene demoniac a man who is so afflicted by something mental or spiritual that he has lost all sense of his own identity. He doesn't even know his own name. And Jesus restores a sense of identity within him. Uh, Jesus then heals a, uh, a woman who is bleeding for 12 years. He restores a 12-year-old girl who is dead back to life. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is one who has authority over those forces that distort, destroy, and lessen human life. And now he comes to his disciples and he says to them and gives them the same authority that he has. The expectation is is that as they go on this missionary journey, that it's going to look a lot like the first five chapters of Mark's gospel, that they're going to be doing all the things that he did, bringing love where love needs to be brought, bringing compassion and wholeness and healing and casting out those forces that distort, destroy, and lessen human life. But he does it in such a way that might make us squirm just a little bit. He says, uh, you are to go out essentially with just the clothes on your back. Don't bring anything on that journey with you. Don't bring extra food or money or an extra coat even. Just go as you are and meet some of the greatest needs in the world around you. Imagine how the disciples felt. We could imagine the scene for ourselves, right? Imagine Jesus was here this morning and he was giving the minute for mission. And he stood up in the lectern and he said, I got an exciting new mission opportunity for you. We're going we're gonna to head out of here. We're going we're gonna to go meet some of the biggest needs and challenges in the world around us. But you can't bring anything with you. No wallet, no hotel reservation, no pa- suitcase packed to the brim. You just have to go with the clothes on your back. There's a sign-up genius on the church website if you're interested. How many of you, raise your hands, are signing up for such a journey? Good, there were a couple of liars in the first service. (laughs) Only the most adventurous among us, people who do travel vlogs, would go and do the things that Jesus is asking them to do. This is the thing that can be so frustrating about Jesus sometimes, is that he seems so impractical. This is an unreasonable request, right? To go out into the world without any of the things that might give us a sense of security and comfort, a sense of of belonging where we're going, he sends us out with nothing. But here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus never asks anyone to do something that he himself hasn't or isn't already going to do. That Jesus sends his disciples out without nothing because Jesus himself comes into our world with nothing. 
He comes into our world and opens himself up in great vulnerability to the needs of the world around him. He enters into this great relationship of risk with the world around him. And now he asks his disciples to do the same thing. The disciples are also supposed to enter the world with great risk and vulnerability. What Jesus is asking them to do is to format their lives like his, to do the things he does and to do it in the way that he does it, to encounter the great pain and heartache and suffering of the world, but to do so with great vulnerability. And this is where we hit one of the biggest themes throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, and that is the theme of discipleship. It is one of the load-bearing walls in the Gospel that Mark writes, that we are to format our lives, orient our lives to look like Jesus in the world. And here's the really interesting thing about the Gospel of Mark. Lamar Williamson in his commentary says this, that when we read the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, we're not meant to just be reading about the 12 disciples of 2,000 years ago that for Mark, the disciples are a stand-in as well for the church community that he writes to and to every Christian community throughout all of the ages. That when we read about the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, we are meant to be reading about ourselves. And the disciples in Mark, they have this sort of downward trajectory. They kind of start to lose understanding as the Gospel goes along. They, They fail to understand who Jesus is and thus understand themselves especially when it comes to things surrounding Jesus' death. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But for right now, they are sent out into the world much like Jesus was. That they are sent out into the world to offer love in places where there is hatred. They are sent out into the world to offer justice in places of oppression. They are sent to offer compassion in places of apathy. They are sent out into the world just as Jesus was. That when Mark, I think, sits down and sits down and imagines what the church looks like, he imagines that the church looks like Jesus, that it continues on Jesus' ministry in its own context. I think it's a reminder to us that whatever we do here together is held in trust, is given to us from Jesus, that we are called to carry on his ministry. That when Mark writes his gospel down, remember his context that he writes it down either in the midst of or immediately following the Jewish war, this great time of upheaval and crisis. And he imagines a church that doesn't run and hide from the pain of the world, but one that runs headlong into it and engages with it. That Jesus still lives and exists in the world around us as we mimic him, as we live and conduct our lives together to look like him. That is our mission, and that is our calling. And maybe that calling scares you a little bit. If it doesn't, there's something wrong with you. Maybe it makes you just a little bit nervous. And we should always be wary of the fine print, right? The fine print that we are sent into the world to be him in the sense of vulnerability, this sharing in the risk of the gospel, to head into the world unencumbered so that we can have nothing that keeps us from meeting the needs that are right in front of us. I'll never forget the very first day of my student chaplaincy as we were getting ready to head out into the hospital to sit with patients for the first time. And uh, we were sent out two by two, by the way, just like Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. And just as we were getting ready to go, I was nervous. Everyone else was nervous. I wanted to make sure that I was saying the right thing. And I wanted to make sure I had all my points of theology right, and, which is kind of a silly thing to think, right? 
But I remember my supervisor saying to us that your presence in those rooms is enough. He said to us, don't bring a Bible with you. Don't bring a notepad to keep notes about your conversations. Just go into the room as you are. He sent us into the hospital unencumbered so that we would have nothing that would keep us from meeting those needs that were right in front of us. And so it asks us the question, I think, what encumbers us? What keeps us as a community from being fully present to the needs of the world around us? Is it our, our status? Is it our own deeply held assumptions about who people are? Is, what is it that encumbers us? What are the purse, bag, and shoes that we carry around for security and comfort that, we, that keep us from risking the vulnerability that Jesus asks us to risk? That we can be Jesus in the world. There's a story by the philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard who was uh, around in the 1800s. It's a story about a, a town full of ducks. And the ducks, uh, they get up one morning on a Sunday morning and they waddle off to church. Uh, they waddle into the church building and they sit in their little pews, the same pew every Sunday because that's what ducks, ducks are like us, right? Um, out waddles the duck choir. Then out waddles the duck minister and he opens the duck Bible, the duck translation, because every, every creature has their own translation of the Bible. And, and the, the preacher begins to preach. He says, ducks, you can fly. You have wings. You can soar like eagles. No fence can hold you. You can fly. And all the ducks in the pew said, amen. And then they all waddled home. Friends, we can fly. We have been given wings to fly. We have been given the authority from Jesus to carry on his ministry. Love still has authority over hatred. Justice still has authority over injustice. Compassion over apathy. We can fly. We can be Jesus in the world. It is who we are called to be. No more waddling. Let's fly. Thanks be to God. Amen.